Amen. Thanks very much for praying, Connor. Uh, Do open your Bibles back up if you've uh, got them with you to Acts 13. Um, As we go, you can be praying that my voice makes it through. It seems to be coming in and out a bit. So hopefully you can all hear me loud and clear um, as we go this evening. I wonder um, if you can think of the most generous or kind gift that you've ever been given. Can you think of one like that? Perhaps a gift that after you've opened it, you've kind of gone, no way. That is too much. Or a gift that's just left you feeling incredibly thankful, grateful to the person or the people who have given it to you because they've given you something that will have a significant impact on your life, be a great help to you, will bring you great joy or encouragement. Well, similar to that, here is our situation in our passage this evening in Acts 13, if you follow along as we look through it this evening. As we read from verse 13 onwards, we're going to see, I think, Paul holding out to the people of Antioch in Pisidia the most generous, the most lavish, the most gracious gift that they will ever receive, if they will choose simply to receive it. And as we look at this passage together, the incredible news is that for each of us here this evening, this same generous, lavish, gracious gift is being held out to us as well. A gift that when we rightly understand what it means for us, should leave us nothing but grateful, saying that is too much, so much more than I could ever deserve. But then that's the beauty of the gospel that we're going to see again this evening. It is an offer of something that we will never deserve. It is a gift of grace, of God's great grace offered to you in Christ. This ultimately is what we see Paul proclaiming from verse 16 onwards in our passages this evening. As he and Barnabas, uh, John Mark now having left them, make their way from Cyprus, where we saw them last week, and go on to another city called Antioch, this time now in the region of Pisidia in Galatia. As Paul and Barnabas enter the synagogue there, in verse 14, the rulers of the synagogue throw open to Paul for reasons that we aren't given here, an incredible opportunity. An incredible opportunity to share the gospel, to speak God's word, as we saw him doing last week. Look at verse 15 there. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. And so that is exactly what Paul does. As we said, speaking to these Jews about God's great grace offered to them in Christ. And to do this, he breaks this down, I think, into three sections. First of all, he reminds them of God's great, gracious work in history towards his people. Then, how God's great, gracious work climaxes in Christ. And then finally, he shows how God's great, gracious work in Christ is for you. For them, for each and every person who will believe in him. And as we see this, it's my prayer that reflecting on God's grace towards us, we've already sung so much about it, haven't we? 
and remembering that that is always how God acts towards his people, that will encourage us. That will warm our hearts again this evening. Our hearts can so often go cold, can't they? We can forget God's goodness to us. So it's my hope and prayer that we will reflect on that. We'll be warmed by God's grace. And then, as we'll see at the end of our passage, these beautiful words, verse 43, we will then continue on in God's grace. Resting in it, rejoicing in it, finding in it all that we need for our day-to-day lives. So let's get into the content here of Paul's speech. Or we could definitely say sermon, couldn't we? From verse 16 onwards. Standing up in front of everyone and motioning with his hands, he calls on his listeners to listen. Something we are called to do this evening as well. And then from verse 17, he first of all reminds us of God's great, gracious work in history towards his people. Look with me at how and see how we continually see God's grace in all that he highlights here. This is a history of God's people, but above all, it is a history of God's gracious work for his people. Verse 17, look with me. We start, don't we, with the truth that God chose the Israelites to be his people. It isn't anything, anything they had done. It is in grace that he chose them. Verse 17, we then read that it is God who made the people great in Egypt. Then in verse 17, still we read that God led them out of Egypt with an uplifted arm. God doesn't abandon his people, but graciously helps them in their time of need. And God's great gracious work towards his people doesn't stop there, does it? If it's particularly apparent in verses 18 and 19, if you look with me, we read there that God puts up with the people in the wilderness. Do you remember how they repeatedly grumbled and complained to the Lord? And yet God puts up with them. Eventually then in verse 19, going on before them and destroying seven nations and giving them the land as an inheritance. Now, if Paul was to stop there, we would be saying, that is enough. That is more than the people, God's people, could ever deserve. But he continues on, doesn't he? He continues on. God continues to be gracious. Verse 20, we read that he gives the people judges until until Samuel the prophet. Again, in the background here, this is God's grace. Judges. If you know it, it's one of the darkest books of the Bible. As God's people, time and time again, turn away from him. Only to then receive mercy and help as he sends another judge to deliver them after they've called out to him. And of course, in verse 21, we then read that God gives them a king. Again, he graciously gives them this king. Even though, in essence, what the people are saying here is, we don't want you as king God. Of course, Saul isn't the perfect king that the Israelites hoped for. The king God, God would have been to them. And so then God, even graciously, as verse 22 says, gives them a better king. David, one who it says there that God testified about saying, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Do you see here the repeated pattern in what Paul is saying? God has continually, down through the years, provided for his people, protected them, led them, giving them again and again more than they deserve. 
What Paul has just been saying to those gathered around the synagogue is this. You've asked for a word of encouragement. Well, here is a great place to start. Look back at your history because you're going to see this drumbeat. God's grace, God's grace, God's grace, God's grace in it all. And as mostly Jews listening on, you can imagine those in the synagogue nodding, can't you, at this point? Yes, Paul, you are right. These are all things that give us reason to praise our God. Amen, Paul. And as we reflect here this evening on this, I think it should give us reason to say amen too. Because as we see this, what we are seeing is we are seeing right into the heart of the God who is today the same Great, gracious God, who time and time again works powerfully for the good of his people. See, here's the point. In all that we've seen here, we are seeing God's character, his unchanging character. You know that phrase, out of character, right? You know, when somebody does something that they they don't normally do, that was totally out of character, I've never seen them flip a table like that. Or I've never seen them not retaliate when they're spoken to in that way. Well, you see, none of that out of character applies to our God. What we have seen here in what Paul's been saying reflects God's unchanging character. How he continues to graciously work for the good of his people. How he is continually faithful to them, even though they are unfaithful to him. That in itself is a great reason to praise God together this evening, isn't it? That is what our God is like, and it will not change. He has proven that to be the case time and time again. Not only is he one who will never turn his back on his people, but he is a God who will welcome his people back to himself, one who continually protects, delivers. Do you know if you're a Christian here this evening, That is who your God is. When you call on his name, that is who he is. See, Paul's words of encouragement here for the Jews and for the God-fearers, they are words of encouragement for us this evening as well. But of course, Paul has been saying all of this as a build-up, I think, a lead-up to his main point. He's been proclaiming God's great, gracious work in history to those in the synagogue here because he now also wants to proclaim to them God's continued great, gracious work towards them in Christ. Read verse 23 with me. Paul's just spoken of God raising up David to be this king. And now in verse 23, he says, Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a saviour, Jesus, as promised. Here is Paul's climax to all that he's been saying up to this point. You you see God's great, gracious work in history towards you as God's people? Well, here now is the same work continued to you in Christ. After all, this Jesus is the promised one who would come to to save God's people as the offspring of David, as the one who will rule on David's throne forever. He is the promised king, the greatest king, the Messiah. The one who will never relinquish his crown, as we'll see in a moment. You know how with musicians, for example, they they write loads of good songs in their time. But they often have a signature song. That if you say that band name or, or that musician, that's the song that you think of. You could say, 
Dancing Queen from ABBA. Imagine, maybe, from John Lennon. YMCA, village people. Well, here, I guess, in a way, Paul is naming the signature work of God for us, isn't he? It is Jesus Christ. The one who came as promised to be Israel's saviour. Now, at this point, you begin to wonder, don't you, what must these synagogue rulers have been thinking? Before, they were probably just nodding away, as we said. But now, verse 23, they must be thinking, wait, what? Who is this that we've asked to speak? What is this guy saying? He's, he's now speaking to us about Jesus. And I guess many others listening on would have been thinking the same. And so at this point, does, Paul does something really striking really compelling, really powerful. He turns to say to these Jews and God-fearers, now listen, what I'm saying here about Jesus, what I'm going to go on to say, this isn't just me going off on one, going down some wacky track or something. No, Paul now shows this Jesus really is the pinnacle of God's work, the climax of God's great gracious work. It is where all of history has been leading to. Look, Paul says in verses 24 to 25, it isn't just me speaking about Jesus, it's John the Baptist as well. He came to point people to Jesus as the Messiah. Before Paul then, from verses 27 onwards, shows a time and time again how the Old Testament, God's word, pointed to Jesus. And in between all of this, he says there in verse 26 these words, brothers, Sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God to us has been the sent the message of this salvation. As a whole, we see here it is sent to us by God's word in the Old Testament as it pointed forward. Sent to us by God's sending of John to point to Jesus. Sent to us now by God's calling of Paul to speak this word. See how all of this continues to be the work of God. Paul's clear implication is this. Where we've seen God working up to now, so now he is continuing to do that. Verse 26, to us has been sent this message of salvation, and it is God who has sent it. Look at verses 27 onwards as we pick up on this. As Paul does demonstrate how this message of salvation has been long spoken about in God's word. God has been speaking about Jesus' coming. Look there, verses 40, 27 to 28. Paul explains how Jesus' condemnation, his death at the hands of those who lived in Jerusalem and their rulers fulfilled all the utterances of the prophets. As he puts it, that's, that's how he puts it, isn't it? See, maybe even that day, as they were reading, right, they gathered around the law and the prophets. They'd read it. Maybe that day they'd read a passage like Isaiah 53, a passage that Steve quoted this morning as well. Do you remember what it says there? He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And then later on in that same passage, verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And verse 9, Isaiah 53, And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. 
Just think of how this links in with what Paul is saying here, right, in verse 28. They found in him no guilt worthy of death. There was no deceit in Jesus' mouth. The Jews asked Pilate to have Jesus executed, just as these passages had foreseen. And just as Isaiah 53 and other passages had foreseen, he was then laid in a tomb, given a grave among the wicked, even though he had done nothing wrong. Paul says all of this, if you, people here in Pisidian Antioch, will recognize it, unlike those living in Jerusalem who condemned Jesus, all of this happened to, be, happened to Jesus because it was fulfilling the utterances of the prophets, things which had been long spoken about, which they'd heard, read, Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath. Paul says Jesus' death, his unjust sentencing, his burial, it was all written about, spoken about beforehand by God who was sending this message of salvation. But it doesn't stop there because Paul then goes on to show that it isn't only Jesus' death that points to him being the promised Messiah, but it's also his resurrection. Read with me how what he uh, says in verse 30 and onwards. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Look at Paul's move here. He has already reminded those listening of God's great gracious work in history towards their fathers. And now he draws them into the picture too. God's great gracious work is continuing for you, the children, today. For those who have actually seen in full, the full outworking of God's grace, his promises. And Paul then points to these three Old Testament passages, again, God's word, that point to this fulfillment of God's promises through Jesus' resurrection. The first, in verse 33, is taken from Psalm 2. He writes, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And that, along with the rest of the psalm there, points us to this moment when after Jesus' resurrection, he is enthroned in heaven. When as the Davidic king, the Messiah, he is installed as the one who will reign eternally on the throne. And as Paul then goes on to say in verse 34, it is only because God has raised this Jesus from the dead, no more to return to corruption, that as this ruling son, the Messiah, God can promise to his people the holy and sure blessings of David, like he had done there in Isaiah 55, verse 3. See, how can, how can what Paul is speaking of here, holy and sure blessings, how can they be sure well, only because of the fact that Jesus has risen again. He is no longer dead. He is reigning on high, never to be removed from his throne. And from that throne, that throne of grace as we've been thinking about, he will dispense day by day those holy and sure blessings of David on his people. As Paul writes in verses 35 to 37, quoting Psalm 16:10. God's Holy One will never see corruption. And those verses he says there cannot be speaking of David, can they? 
Because David did see corruption. We write, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, David fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But verse 37, Jesus, who God raised up, did not, didn't see corruption. Here is Paul's word of encouragement to those gathering in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. God has sent to us a message of salvation, a message long spoken about in God's word, a message that is all about Jesus. How as he died and rose again, he was fulfilling. And now reigning on high, he would continue to fulfill God's promises to his people. Promises of a people. Promises of a land. Promises, as we see here, of great blessing. Great blessing that as it was promised to Abraham would reach all the families of the earth. Doesn't that echo what we see here in Acts? As it reaches out to the ends of the earth. Doesn't it echo what Connor was praying about? As every tribe and tongue hears this good news. Even as Paul opened his sermon, speaking of God's great, gracious work in history, here is what he was always heading to. God's greatest, most gracious work in history, the work of Christ. Christ, long spoken about as the promised Messiah. And I think on reflecting on this, we can learn from Paul's example here. As we'll see, what we'll think about that offer to us today. But if we're Christians here this evening, we can think about how Paul has taken this opportunity to speak. See, we could often be tempted, if an opportunity like this came to us, to begin like Paul does, speaking about things that those in front of us would probably nod with us a lot along. I mean, a message like, God calls us to look after the planet. They can nod along to that. God is a God who cares for the needy and the oppressed. They can nod along to that. But then you see, we could be tempted to leave it there. We should speak about those things, but we should always speak about those things with an aim, with a goal in mind. Because we always need to be heading in our, direct, in our conversations to speaking about Jesus. To boldly, clearly speak about God's great, gracious work in Christ. And then, as we'll see now through the example of what Paul says in verses 38 to 41, speak of how Christ is directly relevant to that person or those people that you're speaking with. Because he really is. Look with me at how Paul concludes here from verse 38 onwards as he holds this good news of Jesus out personally to all who are listening. He essentially says to them then, and incredibly to us today, do you know this great, gracious work of Christ, in Christ, is for you. It's for you too, if you'll believe. Verse 38, Paul says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Here we come back to where we started this evening. Paul is essentially in these verses, 38 and 39, doing this. Doing this to the people who are in front of him. Holding out his hands 
And as he does that, he is holding out the greatest gift that these people could ever receive. The greatest gift we could ever receive. The gift of God's great grace offered in Christ. God's character hasn't changed. He is the same faithful, gracious God today that he has always proved himself to be. And through Paul's words here, we see that God's grace today is freely offered to us. He draws those people listening in, doesn't he? He says, let it be known to you. Forgiveness is open to you. Him, everyone who believes will be freed. And it's the same message for us this evening. Let it be known to everyone listening here this evening, in the church, those listening online. Through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is on offer to you. And if you will believe freedom, justification, that apart from Jesus is not possible, that is being held out to you this evening. Here's the reality for each and every one of us sitting here this evening. We, if we were to have a record made of all of our lives, if maybe even a video recording were shot of our lives, following us everywhere that we go, Reminds me a bit of uh, that, that guy Truman, right? Truman Burbank. You've seen the, the movie, The Truman Show? That's funny. But here actually is what those kind of videos of our lives would show. They would show that we are deeply sinful. All of us. I'd hate for anyone to see that video of my life. How about for yours? And yet there is someone who has seen that, who has seen even the darkest secrets of your life. And that would be included in that video. And someone who even knows more than that, who knows what we are thinking. And that person is God. The one who one day we will have to stand before and give account for our lives. Knowing that, here, only, here I think are only our two options of making that right. We thought about this this morning. Turning to Jesus or turning to the works of the law? As verse 39 picks up on. What do we find if we take that second option? We, we look to the works of the law. We essentially decide, right, enough is enough. I am going to shape up here and I'm only going to live a life honoring to God. We're going to find that day by day we cannot do it. And the reality is that that leaves us without a hope. It leaves us still with the looming, right, righteous judgment of God hanging over us. Paul himself once tried to live like that, didn't he? Being saved by the works of the law. And I guess many of those listening there in the synagogue would have been too. But here Paul is essentially saying, that path is a complete dead end. In fact, the imagery there of freedom in verse 39 shows us that this path of following the works of the law, well, that is like being enslaved. Which is how, as we've been seeing in the book of Galatians, so much of the Bible speaks about our situation apart from Christ. Enslaved. Enslaved to sin. Unable to be freed from it by anything that we do. Which is why verse 38 and the first half of verse 39 is such good news for us this evening. That doesn't have to be our reality anymore. 
Through Jesus, we can know and receive the full and final forgiveness of our sins. Being freed, as your Bible might show there in the footnote, verse 39, being justified, being made completely right with God. Just as if you had never sinned, just as if I had never sinned. That is the reality, the situation, the hope that God offers to everyone this evening if we will believe in Jesus. That is the gift that God is holding out to you this evening. That video, completely wiped clean. Just think of that, what that means for you. You know that sin, or that pattern of sin, that still today you are deeply ashamed of in your life. Do you know what? If you are trusting in Jesus... If you will trust in him, that sin has been completely paid for. Jesus took that sin, even that sin, for you. And God, God is a just God. He will not judge sin twice, because if, he, if you are trusting in Jesus, he has judged that sin on the cross. And it will never be counted against you. Your account is completely clear. Isn't that glorious? See, the reality is that we are no different to those Israelites that Paul kept talking about, who so often turned their backs on God. They were unfaithful to him. Yet the reality is that God is the same faithful, gracious God today that he was back then too. And he has ultimately proven that to us, shown that to us in the person and work of Christ. Christ who came, if you will believe in him for you, that today you can say and know for sure, I am forgiven. I am free. I have been made right with God. No more living under the condemning law of Moses, but living in the freedom and joy of Christ. This is what we've been thinking about in Galatians, isn't it? Isn't it amazing how it ties in? We can know God's favor and blessing day by day if we are in Jesus. Paul was asked, wasn't he, remember right back at the beginning, for a word of encouragement. Well, I hope you, along with me, are feeling encouraged this evening. Can see and feel just how encouraging this is that we're speaking about. Because the work of Jesus, God's great, gracious work in and through him, because of that, we no longer need to fear death. We no longer need to fear judgment. We have been made right with our God. So let me just encourage you, as we think about this this evening, if you have not before put your trust in Jesus, believed in him, if you haven't received this forgiveness, this freedom that Paul is talking about. Turn to Christ now. Come to him. Put your faith in him. Paul's warning in verses 40 to 41, isn't he? He's warning that many today, just like in the Old Testament, will scoff at God's work. But verse 41, the reality is that those who do will be heading to death. They will perish. Heeding that warning, will you, by faith, take hold of the gift of grace that is held out to you this evening? 
I promise you, you will never receive a greater gift. Do you remember that gift that you thought of at the beginning? Well, this is the greatest, most life-changing gift you'll ever receive. Christ. In him is forgiveness. And as Steve often says, because of him then, day by day, we can live under the blue skies of God's grace. We don't need to live under the gray skies of guilt and condemnation. Come to Jesus this evening. And of course, the same stands true if you are a Christian here this evening, if you have already put your trust in Christ. Maybe this evening you've begun to just lose sight of the extent of God's grace towards you, the incredible gift that you have received from him. Maybe you've just taken your eyes or begun to take your eyes off that reality. Maybe it's no longer what defines and and shapes you. Well, if that's you, look with me at how Paul and Barnabas encourage those who do come to faith, who do accept this gift of grace in verse 43. It says there that after this meeting at the synagogue, incredibly, many believed, many followed Paul and Barnabas. And as they spoke with them, here's what they say. They urged them to continue in the grace of God. To continue in the grace of God. See, here's the incredible thing about all that we've been saying this evening, about God's grace poured out to us on Jesus. It isn't just some past event that we look back on but leave there. No, it is a day-by-day reality of blessing and help that we continue to live by. Continuing daily in the grace of God towards you, you can daily rest and rejoice in the truth that your sins have been forgiven. You have been cleansed. Continuing daily in the grace of God means remembering for you, as we were thinking about again this morning, God's law does not condemn you. You have been justified. You have been made right. You are free. And so flowing from that, your standing before God is not dependent on your last day, the past 24 hours, the last week, the last month. No, your standing does not depend on your good works. Your standing depends on Christ. In him you are a son. And doesn't that identity, knowing that, living in that, continuing in that, daily free us from chasing our identity in all those other places that we so often turn to? Continuing daily in the grace of God means that for you, you can daily remember this. God is for you. God is for you. The world may turn its back on you, but he never will. Continuing daily in the grace of God and resting in it, well, that will then also shape how we live, won't it? As Connor prayed, that will mean we look to forgive others, remembering how much we have been forgiven. That will mean that we look to bear with others, remembering how much God has borne with us. That will mean that we seek to love others, remembering how much God has loved us. We could go on with that list, couldn't we? Our day-by-day living flows from the grace of God. 
And of course, continued daily, continuing daily in the grace of God will inevitably leave us wanting to share that greatest gift, that greatest gift that we have ever received with those who we know and, and love. We have been given in Christ a life-changing, precious, life-transforming gift. We have been given a gift that we could never have ever deserved. And that's what everyone else needs to hear too. This week, let me just urge you, as Paul does here, continue in the grace of God. The grace that we've been dwelling on, remembering, singing about this evening. Let's let the grace of God be what we wake up rejoicing in. Let's let it be what we go to bed rejoicing and resting in. And let's let that spur us on. Spur us on to love God, to love our neighbor, and to share this good news of the greatest gift with those around us. As we close, let's give thanks to God for his abundant grace to us in Christ. Let's pray. God of grace, amazing wonder, irresistible and free. Oh, the miracle of mercy, Jesus reaches down to me. God of grace, I stand in wonder as my God restores my soul. His own blood has paid my ransom, awesome cost to make me whole. We thank you for the grace that you have poured out to us on the Lord Jesus. Father, it is a gift that we could never have ever deserved. And yet you have given it to us freely. Lord, I pray that you would help us this evening to see afresh the wonder of your grace. And Lord, would you help us then to daily continue on in it, not moving on to anything else, but knowing that in Christ and in the grace found in him, we have all that we need. Thank you for your word. And Lord, please then give us boldness to go out and share this news with the world around us. We pray ahead for Tuesday night and the opportunity to speak there of your grace as well. And Lord, all the other conversations that we'll have this week, would they be shaped by grace, by your grace towards us? And would you then help us to boldly hold out that grace to others too? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to sing those words that we just prayed there. It's been glorious this evening so much to sing of God's grace. Let's close by doing that together. Let's stand and sing as the musicians play.
may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.